What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Dad's Game Podcast. This is Awesome Hazelnuts here as always. And do check out my Twitch stream for more Legends of Runeterra related content. And now with that out of the way, I'd like to say that it was quite unfortunate yesterday that I was, as I was having my dinner, I bit on my tongue. And now I got a freaking big ulcer on my tongue and I'm starting to speak like a pepega. Okay, so apologies to everyone who's listening to it today because I might sound pretty weird because of the ulcer on my tongue. If you guys can bear with it, it's a, today's a very interesting topic. Or it's a topic which I always cover every season, which is which are the cards which have defined or the very best cards of the expansion, and in this case, Guardians of the Ascended. I do know that the meta is shaping up to revolve around just two decks, which is Naxus Trash and Azir Irelia. I do know that Naxus Trash is potentially the best deck in the meta. I don't think the deck is outright broken. There's some aspects of it which require some changes. I do know. I also know that Atrocity got hit and became 7 mana. But from time and time again, i always been saying that Atrocity... At 7 mana makes no difference from it being at 6 or 7. Maybe you, you can't really do like a Susan into Atrocity on turn, whatever. But now with the Atrocity of 7 mana, it doesn't outright change the effect of that card. Because I've always been saying that Atrocity is a sort of card which allows players to get out of jail free card instantly every single game. You can play like crap. And the thing about Slay is that sometimes you don't keep count of the number of times you activate the Slay, or the number of times you destroy your own stuff, destroy opponent's stuff, Glimpse Beyond. Right of calling, all that, you never count it, and all of a sudden you drop like a huge Susan, a 15-15 Susan. Most likely your opponent can't really deal with it unless they are playing dragons. Even Deep has sort of a, not a very good time against Susan. Because the thing about Deep is that they require their creatures to be destroyed. And saplings, drag dredgers, sea scarab, all that, they are free food for trash. Unless you high roll a very powerful hand and you're able to reach deep as soon as turn 5, turn 6, which is, I would say, kind of expected. But let's be honest, guys. It's not every game where you get to reach deep by turn 5, turn 6. Sometimes you reach deep by, what, turn 8, turn 9. And that's the whole reason why deep is a sort of deck where it loses to itself. It's a sort of deck where a lot of players just sort of just not play it at all. I do know a couple of people who play Runeterra that, you know, when they see deep, they just don't want to play at all. Because it's a sort of deck where you can be the most amazing player on this planet. But sometimes where you don't draw the cards that you need. And in most cases, some decks do and do allow some breathing room. Because most decks are interactive. Some decks just play on its own. And for deep is a funny thing. You need to draw your enablers to make it work. Because a lot of the a huge chunk of your deck is the sea monsters that consist. The sea monsters are the ones that end the games for you. And you need Nautilus on the board to enable the sea monsters to get a discount to flood the board. Yeah, flood the board is a very nice pun, right? You know, to make it work. And so the deck revolves around half of it enabling toss, and the other half are your win cons. Which is a very odd mix. Because when you look at decks which are don't really rely too much on drawing the right cards to win, such as Draven Ezreal, some might argue and say Tribeam is the thing that makes it good. But really, when you look at Draven Ezreal, a lot of those cards are standalone. They don't really require one card or the other to work together. Because ultimately, when you look at Draven Ezreal, they run tons of removal. Doesn't matter which removal they draw, as long as they're able to maintain the board, drop Ferrans, slowly burn enough damage over time, they can just close out the game from there. You look at uh, Shivana Aso, no doubt it's a Dragon Synergy deck, but the whole deck revolves around cards which are good alone, stand alone. You have Shivana, which doesn't really need Screeching Dragon, but it's good when you have it. 
on the board, it slowly gets bigger and bigger, it gains so much value. Squeaking Dragon as a card is the one card which is actually saving the expansion from being overrun by Susan. And then we have Aso, which is a standalone champion, which is good on its own because it gives you free Celestials every turn. And when paired together with other minions on the board, especially when you're winning, because most likely I don't think you'll be able to level up Aso most of the time. When he levels up, you just instantly win. And Susan, I do believe that Susan requires a slay because without the Shadow Ops package, the deck just feels kind of meh. And most is going to be, well, a 5-5 Susan, a 6-6 Susan, because when you look at the Shura package, it doesn't really play too well together with uh, other than Shadow Elves. Because you can't pair it with Noxus, you can't pair it with Ionia, you can't pair it with Freelord. And so the only optimal way of running Susan is with the Shadow Ops package. Where she revolves around destroying stuff, destroying her own stuff, destroying opponent's stuff, and then eventually dropping Susan with atrocity to win the game. And so when I think about the best cards from Guardians of Ascended, the meta revolving around the two decks such as Azir Arela and Susan, Azir Arela is another whole issue on its own. Because no doubt, I know a lot of players, in my last episode, it was actually one of the episodes where there were a lot of differing thoughts regarding about it. I have people contacting me, telling me that, oh, have you seen the, the polls that a Riot guy did? He said that that is balanced and all that, all the win rate. The only thing I get to, I have to say about it is that I know you guys know that the Riot guy gave his exp- explanation on why this deck is not overpowered, why it's balanced. But the main point of it all is that you guys didn't even click on my episode to listen to what I had to say. And that's the thing that bothers me or is something which I find it extremely puzzling. Because if you want to give me an argument saying that, oh, your episode doesn't make any sense, you didn't even click on it and listen to what I have to say. Because in no way in my episode did I say that Azir Aurelia is to the moon or like super incredibly powerful. I didn't say that the deck is balanced in a way because other than running in Azir Aurelia, the only way to play it is with Misfortune. And the only card which makes it a little bit too powerful is Flawless Duet. I think Blade Dance is fine, but Flawless Duet is the card which makes Azir Aurelia a bit stronger than the other aggro decks. And the fact that a lot of players just jump to a conclusion thinking that I'm just trying to flame the deck, trying to say that, oh, the deck is too powerful. All I get to say is that just relax, guys. There's no... When I do my podcast, when I give my thoughts about the game, it's not just some random guy giving giving thoughts and all that. I don't know that you guys have been playing Runeterra for a year. I do not know whether you've been playing the game for a long time. But I can tell you that your one year in Runeterra is nothing compared to my 11 years of playing games at the highest level. And so that's why I'm saying this with gusto. I'm saying this with experience. I have a friend who's like a three-time national champion in Singapore, represented Singapore at World Championships. He just said, you know what? You're no longer just a player anymore. Regardless of whatever you're doing, your podcast, your streaming, you have to act like a veteran. And that's what he told me, which really opened my eyes. Because at this point, I never really thought that I was a veteran until he told me that you're a veteran right now. Because no doubt, maybe you're 26, you're a bit younger than the older crowd in the game. But with the amount of time that you spend playing Yu-Gi-Oh, eventually to Hearthstone, to Artifact, and now to Runeterra, you're considered a veteran because you have seen the games over the years. And so to that, it really opened my eyes and gave me a brand new perspective of how I should carry myself in this game. Because as of now, whenever I play the game on Twitch, I always like to give my opinion about certain stuff. Sometimes my play might not be super stellar. Okay, let's, let's, let's just be honest. I think my plays are incredibly stellar. The only issue is that I've not been putting a lot of hours into the game. Because overall, I think about card games is that after a certain point where after skill, after you factor in the skill part, 
the only thing that can affect the outcome of the game is what you draw, which is luck, which is something which I do not want to blame as the reason why some players are not able to achieve something, some players are not able to achieve some other things. But really, if a player is sitting on a skill level way ahead of everyone else, he's obviously going to win everything. And that can be seen in the Southeast Asia region where there's only a couple of players which are miles and miles ahead in terms of skill level compared to everyone else. They are the same players which are consistently hitting master very early. They're able to get top placing in seasonals easily. And I do not want to name drop these players. You guys probably know who these players from Southeast Asia are. They're able to maintain high ladder ranking all the time. They're able to win tournaments easily. Some of them have incredibly high win rate overall. And therefore, I can say that even though Azir Irelia might seem like a Trojan horse, some players might see that, oh, the win rate is low, which means that the deck sucks. But the thing is that not necessarily the reason why the deck sucks, the reason why there's a low win rate is because the deck is not good or it's balanced. It's, sometimes you have to understand that the reason why Azir Irelia is so good is because of his ability to attack multiple times in a turn. And the thing is that the scout mechanic only enables you to attack twice. But with Blade Dance, you can attack, what, two or three, four times? As long as you have the attack token. As long as you have the Blade Dance to keep attacking non-stop. And that's the big reason why, apart from Blade Dance, you look at the deck overall, the one card which really makes it really good is Flawless Duet. And really, without Flawless Duet, the deck just isn't as quick as it seems because Blossoming Blade is what, 4 mana, 3-3. Three, three. The what blade dancer thing, the two mana two one is two mana, and lead and follow all that generates flawless duet. And flawless duet is one mana two damage, which is a bit too strong. It's not just two damage; it's just two tokens, and you generate it together with Azir with Empress Dias, and it's easily like a decimate on one mana, which is the big reason why I've always said that flawless duet is the card to watch out for when it comes to the deck. And other than flawless duet, the whole deck is just fine. Inspiring Marshall is... Just think of it as a... 5 mana... Cut Ender. And the thing is that when... Marshall's on the board... There's no reason why you cannot deal with it at all. There's so many ways to deal with it. And that's why I always think that the Marshall argument... Of it being a little bit too powerful at 5 mana is... Is flawed. Because... When it comes to 5 mana, 5 drop... It's supposed to be the card where it carries you throughout the mid-game. I do know that the tokens and all that are very annoying... But really, when you think about Inspiring Marshall as a card, they, they really lack the spell mana if they were to drop it because most likely they're just competing all the spell mana to, you know, do that. They do that amount of damage. They have tapped out of Lead and Follow, they tapped out of Return, they can't use Homecoming. And if you can't deal with Inspiring Marshall, you, you most likely can drop a 5 drop. And from there, you can easily stabilize the board. And that's why I always think that this Inspiring Marshall thing, of it being a bit too powerful, is a bit, you know, it's a kind of like a baseless accusation. And so with that out of the way, with me talking about Azir Aurelia, people trying to say that my episode is a bit too flawed. The truth, the, the fact is that they never even clicked and listened to it at all because I can see the stats. And also that Susan with the slay mechanic, with the way the meta is functioning, with the only way to do it is harsh. I do think that Susan might get hit sometime down the road. Players are complaining that the meta is sort of stale with just these two decks rampaging over everyone. But I think overall, we are currently sitting at a pretty fine spot. It's not as good as the golden era of two months ago where the meta was super diverse. Nobody knew what I was going to bring to the seasonal tournament. Anything just works. And so with that out of the way, let's talk about the best cards from Guardians of the Ascended. 
And so regarding Ascended, there are not a lot of new cards that are being released. Primarily only Ionia, Targon, and Shurima are the three regions where there were tons and tons of cards being released. And the thing about card games is that not every card is going to be as useful as the other. Sometimes the cards are just filler cards, which, is re- which are just in the game, not even doing anything at all. They just spot the expansion, but nobody even notices it. But these cards which are identified are kind of meta-defining. And the thing is that even before I release this episode, or, or before you guys even click on it, probably there's a faint idea of what these cards are. Because when you look at the overall pool of Guardians of the Ascended, most of the cards are not that amazing. Sorry, Riot, but this expansion, the cards that are being released, uh, apart from the Ionia package, it really just sort of a... It isn't that super, super great, amazing kind of like expansion, in my opinion. Because a lot of these cards are not even playable. And so the first card, which I identified to be able to define this entire Guardians of the Ascended, is not a CTR Lady of Clouds. I like to get this out of the way because from the from these five cards which I identified they have defined Guardians of the Ascended or the best cards from the overall expansion, I can say that the Lady of Clouds is the weakest among the five cards. Because really, apart from Shadow Owls, the ability to cheese it from a matron, there's really no other way of optimizing the overall play of this card. My initial idea of Lady of Clouds is to pair it together with ASO to make it sort of a a very powerful card, or a very powerful way of leveling up ASO. But when you think about it, you need two turn 10s to make this card work. There are some talk about players thinking of running it together with uh, Rejuvenating Raw, but really, Rejuvenating Raw is not good in this meta, because most likely the game ends on turn 7, turn 8, because of the way Susan with Azir Aurelia, with ASO being able to discount it with Eclipse Dragon, and so really Rejuvenating Raw together with Cita is just out of the books. Maybe if the meta were to push towards something which is slower, maybe CTR will come back. But really when I look at the meta as a whole, I don't think that CTR will ever be coming or becoming like a mainstay in the meta. But no doubt, this one card has created a matron version of it together with the Shivana version. There's a Dragon's version, there's a Mono version, there's a Kalista version. There are many variants of this deck. But the overall overlying play of this is to use Mobilize and then you drop Matron on 7, you trigger your CTR, you buff everything on your board, and that is instantly game from there. Because most of the decks, if they don't run Ruination, they can't deal with CTR at all. CTR just summons and potentially the game just ends from there. Because from experience, you can run Deep, you can run Susan, you can run a lot of the decks, and if your opponent were to trigger that combo instantly on like turn 7, there really is no coming back. Because most of your CTRs, your CTR buffs everything. They are way bigger than everything your opponent has on turn 6, turn 7. Maybe apart from Azir Arela, which closes out game instantly, and discard aggro. A lot of decks, when they play the mid-late game strategy against CTR, they just sort of lose. But the thing is that this deck is also incredibly inconsistent, because when you look at the overall package, the, the master package is what you play is what you get. Maybe the Shadow Owls package allows you to draw cards with Glyphs Beyond, but really your Mulligan is sort of weak. Because the draw cards in your deck are just Stalking Shadows and Glimpse Beyond. And really apart from that, if you don't draw Sitia and you don't draw Matron, both these cards really rely on each other too much. And the main reason why TLC really works is because you don't need to run your Wincon in your deck. Because Lissandra as a card just generates everything you need. And so the whole deck is incredibly consistent because it relies on just one card package. Your Matron relies on that one champion. And the champion sometimes doesn't really, really rely on matron. If you open the god hand of the multiple ice pillars, 
the fading memories and then you just instantly drop the watcher and just win the game. But the C10 Lady of Clubs, the win rate isn't that great. But in terms of a meta deck, it really beats a lot of the mid-range strategies. It beats a lot of the uh, late game decks because your late game is coming down on turn 7, turn 8, which is 2 turns, 3 turns earlier than what your opponent is usually aiming for. And that's why I say that Cita as a card is something which uh, potentially in the future might see more play. But as of now, with the way that the, the meta is the amount of like aggro options, the amount of decks which can only run Cynthia because Rejuvenating Raw is out of the picture. Running in ASO together with it is also out of the picture. And so the most optimal or logical ways to run in Matron. And I do know that some players are asking for a Matron nerf. And to that I can say that it's really very hard to nerf Matron unless you summon a 0-0 copy of the card you summon with Matron. But that really sounds really bad. And so, to that, I can say that Matron is something which I never thought of in nerfing, but maybe sometime down the road, where too many combos become too reliant on this card, we will potentially see a nerf on that. And let's look at the next card which has defined, or one of the best cards from Guardians of the Ascended. It is none other than Wings and a Wave. Before the Ravenous Butcher, there was no other card which provided so much value of 3 damage for free by destroying something. And, lead, and Wings and a Wave is something which gives Ravenous Butcher a run for its buck. Because not only is it a 1 mana 3-3 tree tree when you destroy something that you own, it is also a zero mana, a 1 mana 0-1 which summons another zero, mana, 0 attack, 1 health. Which means you generate 2 tokens on the board for free. And this card is incredibly versatile because it has a, it has a whole new layer of defensive options. It has a whole new layer of adding a slay mechanic. And I can say that Wings and a Wave together with another card which you release together, Merciless Hunter, really makes Susan as a deck go to a whole new level. I don't know that Merciless Hunter is no longer played in Susan. People have have defaulted back to running Blighted Caretaker. Whichever version they run is equally strong because Merciless Hunter is always a 3, three plus 1 slay count because the stats are great. It deals with turn 2 place, turn 1 place. And the fearsome mechanic really makes it like a solitary monk every single time. And the main point about the wings and the wave is that one mana slay one is very powerful. It's a sort of card where if your opponent tries to play funny, you try to pass priority back to you with your trash on the board, you can just easily outplay him, play wings on the wave, add one count to trash, add one slay count, and your opponent is passing priority. And your board state is usually so commanding, so powerful that if your opponent don't deal with it or to develop something else they're just gonna sit behind because playing a pass game against susan is really not that great it's like playing a pass game against timo Ezreal, playing against driven Ezreal when they're ballistic ball on the board because if you were to pass to them what what they're gonna do they're just gonna cast ignition and they're gonna pass back and you're gonna take one damage every turn ballistic ball gets bigger every single turn and that's why i always believe that when it comes to wings and the wave when it comes to these style cards like ballistic board it is very, very powerful because it's a sort of play which allows you to just pass priority without even worrying too much. And that's why I say that the overall package, the Ravenous Butcher, the Rite of Calling, the Wings and the Wave now, the uh, Spirit Leech, and all that, all the very powerful Slay cards, they are just so powerful because they enable you to develop something to gain advantages and to pass that priority to your opponent. 
And the thing is that not only are they just slaying, sometimes they are developing a huge, overwhelming bot on the bot. <laughs> overwhelming bot on the bot. It sounds damn funny, right? And so that's the thing that makes Wings and the Wave so, so powerful. It's a one mana pass priority, slay one, add one count to trash. And this really makes Susan go a whole new level. I believe that this card really makes the win rate go even higher. Because one mana 3-3 three, three is a card where, apart from Driven Azure, a lot of decks don't have the ability to trade so well into this card. And here's the very funny stat, guys. We all know that aggro exists in the game. Aggro just serves as the quintessential counter to mid-range to a lot of the funny, funny strategies in the game. But there's one thing that Susan is really good at. It's his ability to fight aggro. No doubt the deck doesn't run tons of heals. It doesn't run what? I know some will just run Withering Whale, some will just run Valfis. But really, as you look at Susan, the whole deck gets stronger the amount of times you trade your opponent and destroy something that they have. And overall, the entire way the deck works is to generate free tokens. You block, you block, you block, you slay, you slay, you slay, and Susan comes out and you win the game. And for the first time ever, there is a mid-range deck which counters aggro. Like, I don't know that Shivana Aso stands a chance because they run Fangs, they run Radiant Guardian, they run Sunforger. But Susan is the first mid-range deck in the history which has an amazing time against aggro. And this really adds on to the fact that Wings of the Wave is being released, which makes it have a whole... Like, uh, like when you play Discard Aggro, you play Pirate Aggro, you play Assault Aggro, you play against Susan. It's the most infuriating matchup. Because you want to deal damage to your opponent during the early game. But what happens is that they open the also the equally good early game. They have uh, Curse Keeper into Ravenous, Ravenous Butcher. They have Blighted Caretaker. They generate tokens to block. They trade with your stuff. They destroy everything you own for free. They have Black Spear. They have Valfies. <laughs> And that's why I say that aggro really is abysmal against Susan. And that's why I really believe that when players talk about talk about Susan being the meta, being the ultimate answer to every single deck that the song has harsh, it really is true. Because when you look at aggro, they want to develop certain minions and do damage. But Susan's early game matches an aggro package, their mid-game matches a mid-game package, and their late game is just one card, Susan, together with Atrocity, right on negation, and they just win the game. And that's why I say that Wings and a Wave really, really, really makes Susan go on a whole new level. And the third card, which I identify as one of the best cards, is another than Lead and Follow. For time and time, I always mention that in Azir Aurelia, the one card that really makes it so powerful is its ability to have Blade Dance. The Blade Dance mechanic is really powerful, but apart from Flawless Duet, Blade Dance isn't really that mana efficient. And I can say that without Flawless Duet, the entire Blade Dance package just seems kind of meh. Because Blossoming Blade, the Blade Dancer thing, costs mana, a lot of mana. And the thing is that Lead and Follow, together with Return, together with Homecoming, is three sort of cards which save your minions. And when you look at the big reason why, as an aggro concept of Ursia Arena, why it's so good is also because of its ability to make your opponent play very reactive. And when you force your opponent to play very reactive, what do you run? You run cards that save the cards that they target. Your removal, their, no, their removal is used to remove your stuff. And from your point of view, you don't really need to deal too much with, you don't really need to bother too much about their stuff on the board. Because when your opponent tries to remove something that you have, through Screeching Dragon, to Single Combat Concerted Strike, to Challenger, with Mystic Shot and all that, all you gotta do is play cards you save yourself. This can be seen in Lead and Follow, Return, and even Homecoming. 
And one of the cards that was released from Guardians Ascended, and the card which I just mentioned that is one of the best cards, is Lead and Follow. Because without Lead and Follow, the whole deck just feels out of place. Because the secondary effect of Lead and Follow is that not only does it save your minion from getting destroyed by Challenger mechanics, single combat, the Strike, all that, Mystic Shot, it also generates you a flawless duet. And which means that when you look at the other cards being released, those cards which have token effects such as all the Blade Dance stuff, Dancing Droplet, Dune Keeper, Lead and Follow enables you to bounce back those cards, which enables you to have the play effect again. It also gives you Flawless Duet. And Flawless Duet generates you two Blades which attacks, which also adds into Irelia's level up. And together with Empress Dyer's, and God forbid if you have Azir on the board, which means that it's a Decimate instantly. And that's a whole new combo on its own. And that's why I say that Lead and Follow, not only is it a very def- powerful defensive play, it is also a very powerful aggressive play. Because sometimes your opponent will commit all their mana, they want to get rid of things on your board. And you just play Lead and Follow, you summon the blade, you activate Flawless Duet, you deal a Decimate to your opponent. And the thing is that, sometimes when the game goes to the mid-game, your opponent does not have the life total to sustain the mid-game. And that's one of the big reasons why Azir realized too power is a bit powerful. I won't say too powerful. Yeah, that's the thing. Because the thing about a lot of decks is that they cannot sustain the damage that they take during the mid-game or the early mid-game. Because they're talking about three attacks. And this is all made possible by Flawless Duet. Because if Flawless Duet didn't even exist in the game, the deck is going to be set back by many, many turns. They are not able to function as an aggro deck properly. They're just going to get steamrolled by this card aggro, which is really happening right now. And that's why I say that lead and follow, together with the ability to save your minions, gives you the flexibility to save stuff, to play the one mana, flawless duet. It really makes it have the ability to do multiple attacks, which is the big reason why Blade Dance is infuriating to most players. Add in the fact that Azir on the board gives it additional stuff, as into Irelia's multiple attacking, together with I together with Irelia's ability to generate flawless duet. I almost wanted to put flawless duet as the best card. But really, when I think about it, you can't put Flawless Duet because Flawless Duet is not a card in the set. It is a token card created from other plays that you make. And then when you think about it, Lead and Follow, right? Lead and Follow is 2 mana, guys. And the, all the supportive spells, when you look at the, the good old days, Elusive Midrange, no, I mean Kinko Elusive, then you move to Ezreal Kama, you move to Heimovai. A lot of their defensive cards are very cheap, which means that if they're able to save spell mana, they can easily play it, and then they can just turn the game all over his head. And that's why I say that lead and follow is potentially, I can say it's the best Ionia card in the overall expansion. Sorry Ionia, I almost wanted to put it as the best, but lead and follow without it, the deck doesn't really function that well at all. And the fourth card, this is something which uh, I've been playing around a lot. It's a card which exists in deep. I do know that a lot of players have not really thought about including this card at all, but let's talk about it, Bone Skewer. I do remember for a long time, Deep was not seen as a powerful tier 1 deck because the overall deck just kind of is very meh against ASO, against everything in the meta. It's definitely not good against aggro because the current version of it feels like a combo deck. But not with the inclusion of Sea Scarab, with the ability to run a Turbo Deep of running a Leo of the Depths, Stalking Shadows and everything. Okay, here's the funny thing. Before Leo of the Depths was even introduced in Deep, a lot of players were not even thinking of running that, that card at all. Initially, when I played Deep around a year ago, 
or maybe uh, eight months ago, I never thought running lay on the webs. I always thought that as a card, right, it doesn't really do much. But then slowly there was cards like Stalking Shadows, and then lay on the depths suddenly became good because there's a there's a combo that you can do with uh, lay on the depths either on turn seven when Nautilus levels up because. I'm not a very big fan of using Lay of the Depths until you reach deep. Because when you shuffle back the sea monsters, they don't they don't get the buff from uh, Lay of the Depths because they're shuffled back, they, they were not in the deck in the first place, so they don't get the minus one. And so when you play Nautilus, you shuffle everything back, you cast Lay of the Depths, your Abyssal Eye will become zero mana because of the minus four and the minus one from Lay of the Depths. You cast Stalking Shadows and your deck is very thin really. You're able to generate Abyssal Eye, you're able to get Devour the Depths for one mana. Two copies of it by the way. And you can basically create a whole new scenario where your opponent can't really deal with everything that you have. Because when Nautilus resolves on the board, and your opponent doesn't have Harsh, doesn't have a way of dealing with Nautilus, it's just going to make your game expedite so quickly. Most often, some players do know how to play against Deep. The moment that Nautilus is on the board, they just Harsh it to ensure that your opponent, so to ensure that your opponent cannot be able to develop too many sea monsters at one time during that turn. And that actually is a very nifty play where it shutdowns a lot of the big plays the opponent can do. And now, with the Guardians of the Ascended, there is a brand new card that added whole new support, whole new life into sea monsters. And this is not other than Bone Skewer, like I mentioned. I've been having so much fun with Bone Skewer. Think of it as a 2-mana cost of the strike, which saves your sea monsters, which saves whatever you want. It can be played so... V- it can be played on so many different... kind of different plays. You can save your Drag Dredgers, you can save your... Dead Blue Wanderer, you can save Maokai, you can save Nautilus, you can do all that. And here's the best part, it's 2 mana and it's a fast. Which means that it can always react to your opponent. And when you think about it, right, Deep always has a good matchup against TLC. And now with Bone Skewer, TLC is just, yeah, sitting dark. And talking about TLC, right, it's the first time where TLC exists in the meta. None of the cards were nerfed. And yet, not a lot of players are running it. This is incredibly true because when you think about TLC as a deck, it's not that great against Azir Irelia. Initially, I, I did have a friend who told me that Azir Irelia dies to TLC. But when we think about TLC removal, they only can use it once. And after they use that removal once, they're out of mana. And that's when Azir Irelia really shines, because most of their cards is like, what, 1 mana, 2 mana, 3 mana, and most is 4, which is Blossoming Blade, 5, which is Inspiring Marshall. And really, apart from TLC, right, TLC is the one counter to a lot of the decks in the meta. It's really so powerful against Shivana. It is really powerful against almost every deck in the meta which is not deep. And it's also one of the big reasons why I started playing deep last season is because it really eats into Draven Azrael, it eats into Ash LeBlanc, it eats into TLC. Basically, it checks every single box that I wanted to, to have in seasonals. And so, with the introduction of Bone Skewer, Bone Skewer is just crazy. It's not even single combat where you need to duel each other. It is a strike, guys. And let me tell you, man, this is the one card which pivots deep all the way to a whole new level. It is also a card where it's a sleeper strong card. Initially, I thought that this card is going to be played in some form of mid-range Bilge Water deck. But now, when you think about it, Bone Skewer is just... Wow, insanely powerful. There are so many times which I am able to surprise my opponent with it. But now it's not so much of a surprise because a lot of players are just running three copies of it. And the fact that, you know, all you gotta do is play the ladder multiple times and you'll and you most probably will be exposed to everything that's on the ladder. And that's why I say that Bone Skewer, man, it, it works when people least expect it. 
And here's the funny thing about Bone Skewer, it is that when you mill your deck or when you toss cards to enable deep, your opponent can see what you're tossing. And that's why I do really this deal of a two uh, double edged sword. You run bone you run bone skewer thinking that you're gonna surprise your opponent. But what happens when you mill it? Your opponent's aware that you have bone skewer in your deck. And now with the open deck listing, you can't really run tech cards without your opponent being aware that you're running tech cards. And this really adds a whole this really adds like a whole new level of you can't bamboozle your opponent that much in the past. Compared to the past, I mean. Of course, in the past, when you when you <laughs> register your deck list, your opponent uh, will not be able to see what you have registered. Only the tournament admins can verify whatever you have brought to the, to the tournament. Now, with the automated system and all that, running tech cards really just... It ain't it, guys. It ain't it. And that's why I think that regardless your opponent knows that you have it in your deck, whether you want to bamboozle your opponent in Bone Skewer, it's really up to you. But the thing is that Bone skewer, I can say it's a two mana consider strike with the fact that both with your sea monsters are huge, man. Your sea monsters are huge. And there's a lot of funny plays you can do, such as bone skewer something, and then you slotting shadows, get two copies of it, bang your hand. And I'm basically teaching you guys how to do like super secret plays that not a lot of people actually thought of. And that's why I say that bone skewer, right, it makes deep become more than tier two already. It's like tier one. I can say that if you remove the aggro option because sometimes deep does have a good chance against aggro because of the way the deck functions and that's why i can say that bone skewer in deep do try it out man if you guys really want a deck list you can actually talk to me on discord you can add me on discord you can talk to me on email i'll probably send it to you catch me on live on stream i'll most likely be playing deep and i'd like to catch you guys on my stream man i do know a couple of you guys who listen to my podcast also join me on stream to watch what i play but most of the time, I'm now now be testing the decks for seasonals, which is about less than a month from now, guys. Yeah, okay, I'm just clicking my calendar now. I can tell you that seasonals is less than a month. It's about wait, hold me count. Seven days, seven days, seven days. Guys, we are twenty five days away from seasonals, and that is pretty quick. I think that this season is the fastest compared to the last one. Last one was pretty long. Let's take a look. Let's take a look about last month, guys. Last month it was March and April. They held it on twenty fourth and then first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct, correct. Last season was pretty long, but this season is is pretty quick, man. It's gonna be on the nineteenth of June, followed by the twenty sixth of June, and that is yeah, that is pretty fast game. Okay, now let's get back to the topic. Okay, so let's go to the last card, the final card. The final best card of Cardinals of the Ascended. This is no surprise. Merciless Hunter. Merciless Hunter is a card which, when it first released, my eyes were just popped open. I was thinking, holy crap. If Shurima wasn't that powerful as a region, this would have made Shurima tier 0. But when you look at Shurima, most of the cards are just pretty meh. A lot of players are tr- still trying to make the Mono Shurima dream work. I do have hopes that Mono Shurima will be good. But really, Mono Shurima isn't that amazing. It's not game-breaking, super amazing, game-changing, all that, because Targon Late Game Package is still way better than Azir Emperor's deck. My grandfather's deck is better than everyone else, all that. Yeah, that's the funny meme that a lot of players are saying. And Merciless Hunter, right, is the card which made Overwhelm Shurima very powerful this season. Not not to mention that this Overwhelm Shurima has always been strong, but Merciless Hunter really made it stronger let me explain. Merciless Hunter, right, gives you a free trade. And in the early days of running Susan, during the start of the season, a lot of players were running Merciless Hunter because it gives you a free slay, 
At most, it's a double slay, which is amazing. And the fact that this card can be played in a lot of Shurima decks, such as the uh, Azir Darius Aggro, it can be played in... Uh, it can be played together with the... What's the deck called? Yeah, Susan. It can be played together in uh, overall Shurima. It can be played in a lot of off versions of some Shurima decks. It is so powerful that every single Shurima deck wants to include 3 copies of this. Because it gives Renekton the ability to trigger its challenger effect, or the vulnerable effect, the it gets bigger, become a bigger crocodile. And Merciless Hunter, man, I can tell you, man, this card is going to be potentially one of the most problematic cards moving forward. Moving forward into June, the next expansion. Moving forward into possibly end of the year, the, the brand new start, the new season and all that. The brand new year in Runeterra. Because when I look at Merciless Hunter, right, it, checks, it, it takes every box of a very powerful card. 3 mana, 4-3, gives a good effect, giving something vulnerable. And the second effect is vulnerable, guys. Remember I mentioned that Merciless Hunter is almost as powerful as Solidary Monk? I'm not even kidding. At this point, Merciless Hunter is the brand new Solidary Monk. The whole reason why you run Shurima is to play basically the champion that you want and Merciless Hunter. Merciless Hunter is always a 4 damage every turn. You look at the entire meta, there are not a lot of creatures which have 3 attack. Unless you're playing against, uh, what's the deck called? Shivana Dragons, a Shivana Eso. When you look at TLC, most of the cards are what less than three attack. Lissandra, uh, Everson Sentry, maybe even Trunder is four attack. So let's forget about it because Mercedes Hunter comes down two turns earlier, and this four damage is gonna compound and do tons and tons of damage. The synergy of this card, together with the Slay, together with the Renekton, together with everything, really makes this card a must include with every single Shurima champion, apart from Azir and. Zillion. But I do know some version of Zillion that runs that. It's just, this card is just so good that I can see it being paired in almost every single version of a Shurima deck. And that's why I say that Mercedes Hunter, right, is a 4 damage every single turn. It's a solitary monk which fearsome. It gives you a good play effect of making something get vulnerable. And the vulnerable is huge, which enables you to get a good trade and a good 4 attack every single turn. And that's why I can say that Mercedes Hunter is potentially the best, one of the best cards right now. But it will be a very problematic card in the months to come. And actually, I come to the end of today's episode. I briefly talked about the best cards from Guys that Ascended. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And in terms of other news, yes, Singapore is actually going through another lockdown in terms of the COVID-19. We are actually not able to hang out with group size more than two, which I think is, okay, it's pretty good step if you want to curb the infections and all that. But really, if you were to increase the, increase the number of counts, I do think that yeah, let's just, let's not just go into that, man. After my podcast get, gets banned, guys. No, I'm just kidding. Who actually <laughs> wants to get real-life news from Runeterra Podcast? But far from that, I've actually a very big project is going to be coming up during uh, Afterworlds, probably October, September. Trying to look for a space with a couple of my friends because we're trying to set up like a very nice studio to get things done, to potentially do like different podcasts. And so, you guys are wondering about the Desk Game Podcast, whether there will be a live stream format and all that. There will be when I settle the studio and everything because this is going to be a huge project. It's going to be done by a couple of my business partners and friends. It's something which, uh, it's a pet project which we've been talking about for a very long time because opening your own studio, having your own like setup and all that is, is damn amazing. It's something which I've always been looking forward to because you guys know that I've come from a content creator background, started writing articles at 15 and yeah, potentially moved to podcast currently. I want to take a next step forward. I want to look forward to the future. And yes, I'm very excited there. I hope that you guys will be able to see the brand new setup of my studio in the months to come. 
it's either I have it in the office or maybe I just you know think of something up, something that I can think of. I'm gonna get my equipment or the Shure mics or do interface, the a brand new PC for the studio. And so for the next coming months, up until the World Championship, I guess I will be very serious. Wait, not to mention, okay, I'm quite serious about the game now. Because I really do want to earn my spot to Worlds. And so this very big project is something which I'll be starting in October, maybe in September. If I don't make it to Worlds, maybe I get one additional month to work on this studio thing. But as of now, I'm probably going to be doing this game full-time. I think that's a very bad word. Like, I, d- I highly doubt that my supervisors are listening to this podcast. Because there will be a ratio for me to work from home moving forward because of the ongoing pandemic. And so I will actually be taking this time to play more on Terra. <laughs> yeah, I hope my boss don't listen to this. But who, who the hell cares, man? Yeah, I have the power. I can just leave my job right now at 1. And so that's all I have for today's episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll see you guys in the next few episodes. And I'll have two guests lined up for June. Next week is going to be an interesting topic. I might have someone come along together and discuss it. Maybe, maybe not. Because sometimes people have different schedules. In June, I'll have two guests which are very big. Maybe even three guests, depending on the availability of my final guest for June. And that's all I have for today. Do look forward to the guests because I didn't know you guys are interested to know who these people are. The first guy is a streamer. Second guy is a seasonal champ. That's all I can say for now. And the final guy is a personality in the in the realm of esports. And that's all I have for today, guys. Do stay tuned for my next few episodes and that's game. Uh-huh.